We value one thing above all else, don't we, as 21st century Americans. We work constantly to keep it. We strive to hold on to it at all costs. It causes us worry. It causes us stress. It makes our nights long. Our schools, our families, our employers all pay us to avoid losing it. Billions of dollars are poured annually into its success, into divining its secrets. Any outside observer surely must wonder, what is this all-powerful thing that makes us so passionate and so afraid at the same time, so bent on capturing and keeping it? Well, the answer, of course, is our health. The answer, of course, is our well-being. Nothing is so debilitating, nothing is so pathetic, so weak as lying in the bed sick. Nothing makes us so worried as the inability to control our own bodies, to fight off disease, to stave off even death itself. And this contrast between life and death, these questions about health, about fitness, are at the heart of the passage we will consider today. What is wholeness? What makes a person fit, according to Jesus? What does ultimately the kingdom of God, what does this fellow Jesus of Nazareth offer to diseased and dying people? It's with these questions in mind that I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. And what we will see here is something that never occurs anywhere else in the Gospels. Out of all the miracle stories, out of all the healings that we have, we never see Jesus doing a double miracle, except for here. The great physician performs two different healings. And these two stories, we'll see, show us all types of characters, cultural elites, social outcasts, insiders, outsiders, rich, poor. They display the whole range of humanity, life, death, gladness, sadness, joy, fear, They show us, ultimately, the intersection of the Son of Man with dying sons and daughters of men. The ultimate triumph of Jesus over sorrow, sickness, and the grave. You will see, as we read through the text, that the story divides neatly into three major sections. If you have the outline before you in one of those handouts, uh, you will note that the text divides... It opens in uh, verses 40 to 42 with a request. It opens with a request from the local religious leader, Jairus. It moves in verses 43 to 48, secondly, to the touch. A touch of a woman with a flow of blood. A request, a touch. And then finally, it ends in verses 49 to to 56 with the raising 
from the dead of a sleepy young girl. A request, a touch, a sleep. Let's now turn and hear from our Lord. Receive this word, for it is indeed the holy and inspired word of the living God. You would do well to pay careful attention to it. Luke and the Lord write these words. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and James and John and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. As this story opens, we find Jesus in the midst of a crowd. The natural question is, why? What's he been doing? Why is there a crowd here? It's a great question. They're here because they've seen and they've heard what he's done throughout all of the 8th chapter of Luke. If you look back at the 8th chapter, you'll see that Jesus has already faced two enemies. He's already conquered two adversaries. Verses 22 to 25, he's already proven that he can control nature that he can dominate the waters. And then in 
26 and following, not only can he rule nature, but he can also conquer demons. He can destroy the spiritual oppression that is around the necks of the garrison demoniac. But with the entrance of this fellow named Jairus in verse 41, the danger is ratcheted up. The threat level moves from guarded to severe. Because, as we may know, it's the religious types, the ones who have all the aces in the deck, who are almost always the arch enemies of Jesus throughout the gospel. Whenever they appear, you know, whether they're scribes or Pharisees, whether they're legal scholars or political adversaries, these guys, these characters always come in with dramatic music. They're Darth Vader, if you will. The camera lingers on them as the tension increases. And so verse 41 says, Here came a man named Jairus, who, by the way, was a ruler of the synagogue. So the expectation is trouble, alert. But look, look at verse 41 very carefully. See how Jairus acts immediately. What does he do? There came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. This is not what we expect, friends. The powerful, the self-righteous, the religious elites coming to Jesus, and there's no cynical testing. There's no attempt to trap or to deceive our Lord. There's no witty comeback. There's no clever plotting. There's no theological debating. There's begging. Jairus is begging for help. This should instantly surprise us. Luke puts it here deliberately. After all, it makes sense, of course, once we get the backstory. Why is he begging? Why is he falling down at the feet of Jesus, totally embarrassing himself? Because he needs help. His only child, his daughter, 12 years old, lies at the door of death. He's clearly a loving father, as we all would with our children. We would go to any length to save them. He is desperate. He is willing to abase himself before this Galilean hick prophet. His response, therefore, is born of humility. We will see time and again today that one of the core things that Luke is pushing us to see is how do you respond to Jesus? So the first example we see here is the response that we don't expect. It's the response of humility from one who has all the cards. Born of faith in the ability of Christ to heal. So we begin to see in this first brief section that this simple healing isn't quite so normal as we assume. But suddenly the action shifts. In verse 43 and 42, the action shifts from this request by this prosperous, by this upwardly mobile leader to the pulsating press of the mob. 
we move from a request to a sudden touch. It's an abrupt change in, in the narrative. Uh, the story of Jairus and his daughter should be pretty simple, you would think. We, we've read healing stories. We know how the script goes, don't we? Jesus hears the request. He says, you have faith, and I will go and heal your daughter. Or maybe even, like with the centurion, he can heal without actually being present. That's what we expect. It should be a short, simple, healing narrative. But it's not. Not this time. All of a sudden, we as readers get this random scene. This long six, seven verse scene stuck in the middle of what should be a simple, straightforward healing. A woman with a bloody disease, crowds pressing in, Jesus stopping. If you're directing the movie, if you're writing the story, you don't insert an unrelated healing right in the middle. That's bad editing. Well, is, is Luke just a really poor writer? No. Of course not. In fact, in fact, he has deliberately intertwined the woman with the flow of blood into the original story of the dying daughter. This middle scene is embedded specifically into the fabric of this whole passage. And in case you may think that sounds a bit far-fetched, note, for example, the age of the daughter of Jairus. She is 12 years old. Verse 42. Note in verse, the next verse, verse 43. How many years has the poor woman been hemorrhaging blood? 12 years. The connection there is quite clear. Luke is pushing us to see that these two stories are connected. Both characters here who are suffering are women. Therefore, already outcasts. Both are diseased or suffering. Both, indeed, touch Jesus. Both demonstrate the link between faith and salvation. That's significant. The point is, these are connected stories. They're not happenstance. They are deliberately put together. That's, That's significant. But still, this does raise a question, and a deliberate question. Why does Jesus stop for this woman? Why does he delay? Doesn't he know there's a girl dying? Doesn't he know there's a child who's weak and wounded and about to pass from this life? And really, let's be honest for a moment. Who's more important in the town? Who's more important in Jewish society? A a woman who's hemorrhaging blood, who's broke? Or the good, nice, upstanding, religious, wealthy, influential, celebrity, Jairus. He has power, he has connections, and if Jesus saves his daughter, think of all the benefits for the kingdom. Consider the impact, the cultural influence. Surely Jesus, out of all people, knows how to have the most effective ministry, the most strategic plans, especially if you can get one of those Pharisees, one of those rulers of the synagogue on your side. He's humble, this Jairus guy. 
He accepts Jesus. Here's the great chance to impact the world. Compared to that, what can some diseased, dirty, polluted woman do? Isn't this often our conception of the Christian life? Isn't this often how we look at the world? We strive for the things that appear to be visibly powerful. We give grace preferentially to those who are strong, those who have already put in a little bit of labor, those who look good. They have proven themselves worthy of our time and effort, certainly. If it, if it makes our lives, it makes us a little less difficult if we can point to the grand, famous celebrity, the latest and greatest convert to the cause. But what is striking, of course, is that Jesus does stop that this is not the way of the gospel. Our hopes must rest ultimately, friends, in the topsy-turvy, upside-down way of Jesus, not in our own eyes, not in the visible power of today. But this still raises another question. How, how wounded is this lady? How bad is her condition? See, Luke, when he says in Verse 43, that she has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. He's not simply giving a medical diagnosis. He's a doctor, of course, but he's doing more than that. Because you see, according to the Old Covenant, according to the Levitical regulations of Israel, a flow of blood indicates that you are impure. Leviticus 15, for example, talks about these laws of ritual purity. If you come into contact with someone who has a bodily discharge, especially of blood, you are considered ceremonially unclean. In fact, it's required in the book of Numbers that if you, if you even come into contact, if you're even around someone who's unclean or something, an object that's unclean, you yourself are removed, had to be removed from the holy, from the clean camp. You could not travel through the wilderness in the camp of God until you had been purified, until you had gone through a purification offering. And that law of uncleanness is in the background of the story. Consider, for instance, the famous story of the Good Samaritan. We often mock the priest and the Levite who pass by the man who's been beaten up in the side of the road. But strictly speaking, the priest and the Levite were attempting to obey the law. They were avoiding contact with someone who's unclean. You see, because in this case, even by being merely present in the crowd, this woman with the flow of blood spreads contagion. The impurity of her disease threatens everyone. She knows that. You can tell that she knows that if you read through here because she acts secretly. She comes in behind Jesus. She touches just the bare fringe of his clothes. She wants to avoid being forced to confess and call out. She's embarrassed, a bit awkward. Socially speaking, she's an outcast. Um, if she touches someone, as she does in verse 44, that's that could threaten their purity. But perhaps you're, you're here today, 
wondering really how ancient Israelite ritual beliefs about purity and cleanness have anything to do with the 21st century. Surely, surely, we say, no one today holds such primitive views about the power of touch or about purity. Isn't this just one more example of foolish, naive trust in quasi-magical notions? But I do think, however, that if we take a moment, we'll find that we are not so far from this scenario as we might assume. Consider, consider first the omnipresent, ubiquitous appearance of antibacterial soap dispensers. <laughs> consider wet wipes. Consider, on a more grave note, the fear Ebola of HIV, even the debate over the value of vaccinations, certainly Certainly the increase in the ability of the medical establishment to diagnose, to treat disease is most beneficial. But I don't think we can say that we are any less concerned about vectors of contagion than our first century ancestors. After all, where do our computer emails go when we're finished with them? They go into the trash or, if we are green-minded, into the recycle bin. Even our virtual selves, even our digital bodies, want to be clean. You see, we have this inevitable need to get rid of dirt. You know that if, if, if you've tried to vacuum a room, to make it clean, that lasts only for a little bit of time. We all want to purify our houses from the grime, from the hairs of our pets to the messes of our kids. It's an eternal battle. And there's something inside of us, I, I, I do think, as humans even, that recoils not just at dirt, but at sickness. Whenever someone coughs or they sneeze and they don't cover their mouth, we run away, don't we? We instinctively fear contagion. We try to cover all of our corners and protect ourselves. In other words, the story of this woman is not too far-fetched, I would say. But you see, Luke's not just telling a story about a nobody woman, about influential gyrus, about purity laws. There's another group here. There's another character that we haven't really discussed. But they're also there. The crowds, the crush of the mob, the pressure of the people is oppressive, it's overwhelming, it's threatening, it's distracting. We think of the crowds in the Gospels, and often we may think pity. We may feel heart-rending sadness for their conditions. And that's often how Jesus reacts, but not this time. That's not their role in this narrative. In order to understand their role, we have to go back. We have to go back to the start of chapter 8, where Jesus provides the famous parable of the sower, verses 4 through 8. He describes, as you may know, a farmer throwing seed across the field. The seed falls in different places. Some falls in the road, some falls among rocks, some falls among thorns, some falls among good soil. And later he interprets this in secret to his disciples, his followers. 
That the parable is an allegory for the reception of the word of God, of the gospel. The seed is the word. The locations represent different reactions, different environments for the word. Notably, the one we want to focus in on is in verse 14. We read there our Lord's explanation for the seed that falls among the thorns. What does he say? He says, this seed are those who hear the word. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. What do the thorns do? The thorns choke the seed. And that verb choke, that word there is in verse 14, is the same verb used in this parable, this story rather, in verses 42 for the word pressed, and verses 45, verse 45 for the crowds, the crowds press, the crowds choke everyone. Jesus, the sick woman, the disciples, all are affected by a thorny, by a prickly, by a bristly environment. But again, see the reaction of your Savior, dear Christian, when pressed and threatened by the mobs, by the crowd. He does not ride like the powerful of our day do, encased in a limousine, surrounded by bodyguards, the 1%, not willing to go with the 99%. That's how the leaders, the celebrities, the famous of our day act. Always in a cocoon of safety, never threatened, never poked or prodded. Every photo shoot is highly choreographed. Every cooing baby, every smiling mother, rigorously pre-screened. But Jesus is not beholden to that pattern. That is not the way of the kingdom of God. Though ruler of all the earth, the Lord does not pant like a dog in heat after the elites of this world. But his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his very self goes into the thorn bushes, goes into the crowd. We, on the other hand, are we not far often prone to do the opposite thing? We are prone to retreat from the thorns, always domesticating, always reducing the circle of insiders. Jesus welcomes the danger of the mobs. Because he sees a greater opportunity than our eyes can perceive. That's why Jesus ultimately lets the crowds slow him down. Verse 45, he pauses. He asks, who touched me? He deliberately slows down. Even though even though a girl's dying. She's young, 12 years old, all the opportunity in the world to further the kingdom, even though this poor woman is not only socially outcast, not only ritually impure, not only economically broke. The gospel is for people who are broke. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. 
It's for those who, by faith, humiliate, come to themselves, come to Christ humbly, and by faith approach Him. It's It's for those who are weak. You see, the reactions that we often have to the cares of this life, to the pleasures of this age, are not often those of people who think they're weak. We have two different reactions here. Note them carefully. Two different reactions to the pressure of the crowd, to the thorny poke of the mob. On the one hand, the nameless woman comes in faith, believes that even just a mere touch from the healer will save her. On the other hand, after Jesus asked, who was it that touched me? Who speaks up? Our good friend Peter, who always likes to talk, doesn't he? He says, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. You see, the follower of Jesus, the disciple, the one who should know, if anyone is going to know about how the kingdom of God works, you would think it would be the disciples. You would assume, naturally speaking, that the people who have been with Jesus know the most about this guy, Jesus. They know how he operates. But Peter is confused. Well, what do you mean, who touched you, Jesus? Everybody's around you. That's a silly question. Peter's worried. He's like a police officer, a bit threatened by riots. He doesn't know what to do in the middle of the thorns when there's a little bit of pressure. When Jesus asks a strange question, Peter wilts. So the question comes to you, if it comes to me. What's your reaction, dear Christian, to the cares and riches and pleasures of life? Peter wants safety. He doesn't understand why the gospel is going out now. Why is Jesus asking this question? And perhaps you, like Peter, have been a disciple of Jesus for years. Have you forgotten the reach of the gospel? Over time and pressure, our faith often hardens, doesn't it? Our love often calcifies. We are prone to question the wave of the Lord that seem so confusing. Why are these people here, we might say? Why is the gospel for the weak and the abandoned? We approach, therefore, only those who are safe. We begin to restrict and contain the kingdom. We build, out, we build walls to keep out the undesirables. But the width of mercy, the grasp and the reach of grace is not bound by wealth, not bound by dress, ethnicity, religion. The immigration policy of Jesus calls to all and says, believe, come to the Savior's side, though you be weak and wounded. Which you see, of course, in the reaction of Jesus to this woman's touch. He says, someone, someone touched me. I, I perceive that power, that authority has gone out from me. Um, and the question, of course, when he demands to know who touched him, the woman's thinking, uh-oh, he wants to call me out. He wants to shame me. This teacher, this rabbi is here to condemn me. 
I've, I, I'm, I'm caught. But you see what Jesus does here is not to shame her. It's to make her profess the faith. His reaction is not to back away, not to put her in the middle of the ring so that all can stone her, not to get angry, but tell her to come and confess what has happened to her. You'll note that the the miracle does not end, this section does not end with a miracle. The ending of these miracle stories is always important to grasp. It ends in verse 48 and verse 47 with the woman standing falling down before him like Jairus fell down before him and declaring in the presence of all the people what had happened, how she had been healed. And his response, daughter, go in peace. You see, the ending of the healing is not simply medical curing. It's not simply a cure, but it's a care. It's not simply a cure, but a blessing. It's not simply well-being, but it's peace itself. Wholeness, therefore, is not simply physical well-being. But Jesus says here, it is when you are with me, when you state that you are with me, you are healed, truly. And as with this woman, so with you, dear Christian. For your physician... Your healer was placed in the epicenter of pollution. He entered ultimately on the cross into the depths of the outbreak. As he was touched by this unclean woman, so for your sake and for your salvation, he has come down to our land of misery, our country of sadness, contagion, and crisis, your life of sickness. What is striking, of course, about the cross, it's an element we often pass by, but what is striking is that on the cross, Jesus refuses the painkillers. He doesn't take the Vicodin, the morphine of vinegar that's offered to him. But the suffering servant, the great physician, takes the full pain and weight of our sin upon himself. And to those who come to him by faith, he offers this same cleansing from your misery, from your condition, as the flow of blood from his wounded side does not cease, but continues to heal all who come to that fountain. It does not pollute. It does not make you impure, but it makes you pure, dear Christian. It gives you ultimately as it gives this woman peace itself. So we come, finally, back to Jairus. We've seen a request. We've felt a touch. Now time for a sleeping girl, a dead girl, to wake. Here we are, verse 49, back with Jairus, back with his daughter. But there's a problem, of course. A servant comes with news, the blackest news of all, in the young bloom of her life, with everything before her. She's dead. If only child has died. Jesus 
is late. Jesus has failed. Death has won. Is this, is this the way of the master? Is this the way of the Lord to let death win? You can imagine, of course, the feeling of Jairus at, at this moment. Um, you know, hands balling up into fist, anger at, the, at Jesus, uppermost in his mind, frustration. But see, see again a moment when the reaction to Jesus is so crucial. Jairus does not complain. He does not say a word here. He could say, well, nice job, Rabbi. Great. You wasted time with the crowd, with that woman, and now my girl's dead. She was a zero. Why were you wasting all that energy with her? Do you not know who I am? Indeed, by all appearances, the situation is hopeless. He has lost his daughter. But Jairus shows his faith by not speaking out. As one, one scholar comments, true faith proves itself above all else when, in the face of certain events, everything is too late, humanly speaking. The last test of faith is death. So you can imagine the despair he, uh, of, of Jairus. He's already given up all of his social uh, abilities, all of his dignity. He's already begged from Jesus. Does Jesus not care? And yet we see here uh, another crucial point for us, for our, our lives, don't we? The timing of Jesus is not the timing of Jairus. And the same is true for us, isn't it? The timing of our Lord is not just working in a mysterious way, but his clouds that, are fill, that fill us with dread so often are indeed big with mercy, and they will break with blessings on your head. You see, Christian, trust in the Lord's timing. Jairus is telling you, trust in the timing of the Lord. For while you were still weak, consider while you were still weak, precisely at the perfect time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If God can work the death of Christ out into the redemption of many, can he not work your life, your week, your days, into holiness and redemption for your life? Where is your patience? friends. Where is your patience when the timetable and the plans that you and I cobble together from week to week fail? We are called here to trust in Jesus. But we're called and we're shown something more than just that. Because into the void of death, into the blackness of despair, speaks the Lord. Look at verse 50. Look at verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, this news, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Again, there's a contrast here. There's a contrast between the reaction of Jairus and the reaction of those in verse 52 and 53 
who are mourning and weeping for this dead girl. Jairus is called to believe. Only believe, and she will be well. And he does. The mourners who are in shock over, the, over death mock the Savior. After all, isn't he a bit naive when he says, oh, well, she's, she's not dead, she's just, she's just sleeping. What a foolish Galilean peasant. They laugh at him. And then, for the second time, Jesus does the unthinkable. Picture the scene. Every Jewish listener, every Jewish hearer, every Jewish reader is saying, don't touch the girl. Don't touch her. You'll be unclean. And he takes her hand. For she is dead. She cannot reach out to him like the woman. He speaks to her. The way that your mother woke you up all those years ago when you were young. Child. Time to get up. Child. Wake up. With a few words, with a touch of his hand, Jesus undoes the one thing that our society fears above all else. It fears so much that it even shuns using the word, that which must not be named. We bury it at, in limousines. We deny its existence. We speak instead of passing on, of being carried away on angels' wings, of going to a better place. We do not speak of death itself, the great enemy that provokes, if we are honest, not simply denial, but nightmares, anxiety, all manner of depression. Death has reigned over the world, over us, since the days of Adam. We rebels have fallen time and again to its power. But the marvel of this miracle is that Jesus bends low, though by all rights he should have kept himself away from the defiled girl whose body is a stark reminder of the curse in the garden. You see, Christ, as we read this morning, is indeed the firstborn from among the dead because he has fought with death itself. What you fear above all else, if you're honest, he has conquered. You may not feel sick today. You may not think about death in this hour. But in your own strength, you are exactly like this girl a corpse bride. And you are brought to life by the one who has laid himself on the tree of that curse, the shameful death of the cross. Since you and I share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why are you afraid of death? Why are you scared of it? Do you see what Christ has done here? Do you see what he has done on the cross and in the tomb? Look at how much greater is the life offered to you this hour. Look at the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness that reigns in life through this one man. He is the life. 
He is the righteousness. Why do you continue down the, door, the driveway of death? In the days and the weeks to come, look to the life that you have if you are his. Death is indeed swallowed up in victory. Can you say that? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God that the death due to us has been taken by the giver of all life so that by losing his life, we gain life itself and the victory. When the thorns prick, when the pleasures and cares of this world, when the dust and dirt and decay of the curse threaten you, Week in and week out. When sickness lays you at the door of death. When your friends pass away and die. You are called by these words. By this one to look by faith. To his flow of blood. Who does indeed heal all your wounds. And cure all your diseases. May we all do so. In this hour. Thanks be to our God. For his word. Let us now go before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Almighty Lord and God, you are the Savior who has come down from heaven to earth. You have rent open the skies. You have burst in to the lives of Jairus and his daughter, of Peter, of the crowds, of the woman with the flow of blood. And you have demonstrated your kindness and your mercy, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Strengthen us, we pray. Help us to know the reach of your gospel, that we who were once dead have been transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son, who is the firstborn from among the dead. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this week, strengthen us to live and love and serve our dead and dying neighbors. We ask this in the name of the great physician, the one who has conquered death, Jesus Christ, the living and resurrected one. And all of God's people said, Amen.